Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Good morning, church. Today's Bible reading is from John 14, 1 to 7. After I read, I will say this is the word of the Lord and you will respond, thanks be to God. John 14, 1 to 7. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, Would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is the word of the Lord. and live series and it's really trying to see the person of Jesus Christ through the book of John and we're trying to go through um, as many passages of the book of John from beginning to end to let us know who the person of Jesus Christ is and John says something very very instructive about right why he wrote this book that knowing Jesus also means knowing ourselves you can't really know yourself properly if you don't know the person of Jesus Christ And the certain knowledge of the person of Jesus Christ is what guarantees you eternal life. He says that I have written these things so that you will know that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah and that by believing in this, you would have eternal life. So we do feel even though the book has been written like uh, centuries ago, it still has a lot of relevance to 21st century Lagosians like you and I. If Jesus truly is still alive, then knowing who he was, what he stood for, and what he came to do is still very important for us here, even though he ascended 2,000 years ago. And so we want to look at this passage here today. And um, I think it's, it's a very famous passage, whether or not you're a Christian. Um, and I think it will speak to us. So let me just say a prayer before we start. And now, Lord God, we just ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and redeemer. To which we said, Amen. Sorry. Now, let me start with this. Have you ever met anyone so full of themselves that they thought they knew everything. What are your thoughts about such people? Ah, Exactly. 
What about someone who believed and made sure everyone knew their own way was the only way of obtaining a particular favorable result? What do you think about such people? Exactly. They're obnoxious. You think they're arrogant. You think they're they are not particularly the best of people to hang around or to be with. Well, in verse 6 of this reading, we're introduced to someone who thought all three. He thought he knew everything. He thought um, that it was only coming through him or listening to something that he said. That was the only way you could get a favorable result. If you notice in verse 6, Jesus answered. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Now notice, he didn't say, I am a way, a truth, and a life. There was a definite article, the definite article, the, is saying that in this particular thing, I am the way. You know, like if someone says, Francis is a man, you say, okay, yes. But if you say Francis is the man, you're saying something particular about Francis to exclude others. Now, in case you are wondering that Jesus was saying, well, he's the way, but there are other ways as well. He's the way, but, you know, somebody else through is also the way. He then includes... The phrase after, which is to double down on this exclusive claim, it says, no one comes to the Father except through me or except by me. Now, truth is, if you are really going to understand Jesus and Christianity, you have to deal and come to terms with his exclusive claims and Christianity's exclusive claims. By exclusive, I mean that it's saying that on certain things, you're not going to get it anywhere else except through Jesus Christ and through the religion that he founded. Only through Christianity will you get this particular thing. Outside of Christianity, you can't get it. Now, by that I'm saying, for instance, if you take other religions of the world, they value marriage, right? Muslims value marriage. I know some will say, well, they allow multiple wives. That doesn't show they value marriage. But at least they do value the family. Hindus value marriage as well. And I would say that many of those religions, they will be able to tell you wonderful things about how you can conduct your marriage. Um, also, many of these religions will preach tolerance. Buddhists preach tolerance. Christianity preaches tolerance. Now, so by saying, if someone said that, well, Christianity is the only religion that can give you any kind of um, good advice for your marriage, or how we should relate with people that disagree with us, that would be false. But Jesus is saying, the only way to the Father is actually going to come through me. Others, no. And so if we truly want to be, to maybe understand what Christianity is, or to Growing our Christianity, we have to come to terms with these exclusive claims. Now, the context, let me just say a bit about the context of this discussion. Now, we've been going through John. We said that John 1 to 4 was really contrasting Jesus and John the Baptist, and then Jesus actually ascended. And then um, from 5 to 10, chapters 5 to 10, you're now dealing with Jesus' um, dealings with Jewish opposition, the Jewish opposition and, and leaders. 11 to 12 is actually transitory. Or let me say 11 is transitory. This is where Jesus performed his um, greatest miracle on the way to Jerusalem. But 12 to 9, that is uh, how many chapters? 12 to 9 is about eight chapters. 
John dedicates to what has been dubbed the Holy Week. And the Holy Week basically chronicles the events surrounding the life of Jesus one week before he went to the cross, before he died. Now, in that 12 to 19, chapter 13 to 16 has been dubbed the Upper Room Discourse. So four chapters, Jesus Christ is really with his disciples, the 12 of them. Eventually, one of them goes. He doesn't stay till the end. That's Judas. But he's talking to them, and he's saying certain things. He's teaching them or leaving them with certain things um, because he's about to depart. And he wants them to hold these things uh, fast. So after informing them of his departure, right, he proceeds to comfort them as we see in verse 1. He comforts them not by acquiescing to their feelings that he remains, but by further explaining why he's going away. That is in verse 2 to 4. And then he elaborates further in verses uh, 6 to 7 on a question that Thomas asked in verse 5. So this is, it's in this context that this whole this phrase, I am the way, the truth, and the life, it's in this context that emerges. Jesus Christ is about to depart. Uh, you can check uh, chapter 13, the previous um, chapter, verses 1, 33, and 36. He's about to depart. He's informing his disciples, but on, in, in light of his departure, he begins to teach them th certain things. So 13 to 16 captures that. And now we're in chapter 14. He says this particular thing about him being the way, the truth, and the life, but it's in the setting about him telling them about his departure and that it will have a bearing on their eternal destiny, but also he further elaborates on this when Thomas asks him a question. So those three statements are not only essential for understanding who Jesus is and how we can follow him, but they would help us structure our sermon today. The sermon is Christian Exclusivity. That's the title. They'll help us structure our sermon today, but I'm not going to say it in the order I said it. We'll go with these three points in this order. First point, the truth. Second point, the life. And the third point, the way. So he's the truth, the life, and the way. Now, it's one thing for Jesus to claim that he said true things. Well, you know, that's not that controversial. You say true things. Shall I go and say some true things today? I'm sure Francis, well, maybe Francis hasn't said. But anyway, it's not to, you can say some true things, and that doesn't make you controversial. Now, what still, he didn't just say that he alone possessed the truth, or he alone possessed true things, and no other person can say true things. Actually, he goes one step further and says something more ghastly, that he himself is the truth. Now, that's quite frankly a very arrogant statement. And increasingly, we modern Lagosians don't like people who claim certain things with exclusivity. People that say they have the absolute truth, you know, we find them to be very, very suspicious. We all, especially if Christians come and say, you know what, that the way I follow is the only way to salvation. That just rings as quite smug, and at the same time, it rings at, as, quite frankly, very, very, very arrogant. And so when we make certain exclusive claims, more uh, than uh, ever before today, 
I think both in Lagos and in the West, we, we try to deal with people that bring exclusive claims in four different ways. Let me say four different ways. I'm not saying they're the only four different ways, but there are some. So let's look at some of them, and I'll probably offer some rebuttals to this. So we either, for people that bring exclusive and absolute truth claims, we, we either relativize, liberalize, privatize, or ostracize the truth of what they say. So we relativize it, we liberalize it, we privatize it, or we ostracize it. So let's take the first one. We relativize the truth. What do I mean by that? It goes something like this. No one religion, worldview, or system of thought has it all. I mean, it's crazy to say that. Now, they all have parts of the truth, but not one of them has the truth itself, especially the truth in terms of what is going to happen in the future. No one religion has it. Now, it normally goes with this particular, I don't know if you've heard this analogy. It's the analogy of the blind man and the big elephant, right? So these are blind men. They cannot see anything. You take those blind men to this particular elephant. Now, remember, they've, they've been blind from birth, so they, they don't really know. Well, not blind from birth, but they've been blind for a while. So you take them, you want them to discover something. So one goes, and he touches a tail, and he thinks, well, you know, this is some kind of animal. All right, so, you know, the blind man says, and gets it, it's a real tail. Then the other one goes, and he gets the, the, the legs, and he thinks these things are humongous. Well, so this is a huge animal. All right, that's fine, that's fine. Then another one goes and says, and grabs the trunk, and says, ah, I think we're going somewhere. I think we're going somewhere. It's a trunk. It's not just a large animal. It's, well, it's not just an animal, it's a large animal, and it's got a trunk. I think I smell something. And then one more person grabs the ears and grabs the ivory tusks, and when they consult with themselves, they all say, this is what? An elephant. And that is what religion is like. There isn't, one cannot say that you've got everything, you've got parts of the truth, and we find the different parts of the truth in different religions. And when we see those things together, we can then say, here is the true thing. So don't come with exclusive truth claims. You can come with your truth claims, which is important, and their truth claims, quite important, my truth claims, and then we bring it together, and that is what forms the truth. But if you actually say that you've got the truth alone, that is quite arrogant. You can't say that. That is wrong. Now, what's the problem with this view? Now, I think um, a former British missionary, a guy called Leslie Newbegin, actually addresses this particular analogy, and I think he's quite right. If you say that it is wrong for one person to actually say they have the truth, the truth, but that everyone should say that they've got parts of the truth. So the blind men are there, and one gets the trunk, one gets the uh, tusk, and one gets all of those things. What's the problem with that? Well, there, ha you, there has to be one person that supposes that he sees everything. In other words, the blind man can't see everything, but somebody must know that there is actually an elephant, and what's happening is that the blind man cannot see that it's an elephant. They can only see that it's the part. In other words, whilst you say that Relativized, uh, the truth is just relative, you're actually not making a relative statement. You're making a very, very exclusive statement. You're saying that people who say that exclusive truth exists with them 
are wrong. But once you say that they are wrong, you are actually making an exclusive claim. And so, by your own argument, you destroy yourself. Do we understand that? You are saying that all things are relative, but the statement that all truth is relative is not a relatively true statement itself. And so there's a problem. The second one is that we liberalize the truth. Here's what we say. We say something like this. Religion is important. You know, it's therapeutic. It gives you some value. But science has shown us that supernatural claims surely aren't true. You know, now we are that once we were children, we actually believed those kinds of things. But now that we are grown up and science, modern science has come, we know that supernatural claims aren't true. So we're not saying get rid of the whole religion. No, why should we say that? Religion is actually quite important. Let's get rid of all the extraordinary claims in Christianity. In other words, let's detoxify it and keep the kernel of what it stands for and what all religions stand for. What's the kernel of that? It's peace, it's love, it's tolerance, and it's justice. But all these claims to supernatural occurrences and all those things, like in Christianity, virgin birth, you know, resurrection, turning water into wine. Now, most people that don't like this kind of truth, they really like that miracle of turning into water, water into wine. But let's leave that. But all these miracles, casting out demons, all those things, we can't. We know we have science, and we know that we cannot test it by science. And so it cannot be true. Now, what's wrong with this statement? Well, first of all, it is arrogant to claim that religions get rid of certain things that are central to them, that make them those religions. Like in Christianity, if you take out the resurrection and you take out uh, the supernatural creation of the world, take out the crossing of the Red Sea, take out um, uh, the virgin birth, take out uh, all the, uh, like this, this is basically what uh, Thomas Jefferson did. Take out all of those things, you're not left with anything that looks like Christianity. You're left with a new religion. So first of all, it's arrogant. You weren't there. Many of these uh, religions have existed well before you came. But for you to just say that, you know, the best thing is to treat them on their own terms. So that's the first problem. But the second problem is, the bigger problem, is the claim that super, the supernatural cannot be true. The problem with that statement is it's a very, very faith-based statement for people who say they don't deal with faith, but they deal with reason. Why is it a faith-based statement? Well, it is because you cannot test certain things only through science. Let me give you an example. If someone says, well, you said Jesus Christ rose from the dead, right? I know how to test things uh, logically and empirically. We, you know, let's go to the lab. We cannot actually repeat this exercise. Therefore, it cannot be true. Well, someone once said, the philosopher said, it's like saying this. It's like saying, Shegun Ahmed, Shegun, you feature in almost all my sermons. I don't know why. Maybe because you sit down here. But it's like saying, Shegun Ahmed comes to meet me. And he says, Femi, this is night. It's night. He says, I've lost my keys. I can't find my keys. And I said, oh, you can't find your keys. I'll look for it for you. And then I go to the expressway. There's a lamppost there. And, you know, the lamppost actually provides light for a certain, a certain area. And then I go to that place, and I look around, look around, look around. I didn't see it. I said, Shagun, you know what? You've never lost your keys. Why? Because I went to the lamppost where there is light, and I couldn't find it. And Shagun is going to say, well, that is absurd. 
Because what if it's not under a place where the light can shine for me to see it? In other words, science gives us only a certain kind of knowledge. There are certain things that cannot be tested by science. That doesn't mean they're not true. Alexander the Great existed. Do we most, most of us will agree by uh, that statement, right? How can you scientifically prove that? No, you can't prove it scientifically, but that doesn't mean it's true because history and the keeping of historical records is another form of knowledge. And so for you to say that we cannot agree that something is true unless we scientifically test it, how do you scientifically prove that statement you just made? That everything that cannot be tested by science is actually wrong. Is that a scientific statement? No, it's a, that again destroys itself. And so we have to say that the fact that science cannot investigate it only shows, at least the supernatural, that science was not designed to investigate such a thing. Third, we privatize the truth. Now this one is probably the most popular. We say something like this. Now, your religion, whatever religion, is really, really important for the society, right? It's important for the society because I find out that the people that work in my office, some of these guys that are religious, they're very, very, I don't know, they're they at peace with themselves. There's something, there's an inner glow that they have. And I ask them, why do you have this inner glow when we're going through all of these things? How come I don't have the kind of peace that you have? I'd like to have it. And I say, well, it has to do with my religion. Oh, so your religion actually, because I pray regularly, I go to church, I sing. So your religion actually has personal therapeutic value. Now, we know that even though it has personal value, therapeutic value, you know, it makes some extraordinary claims. Most of these are not even historical. So I think what we should do is we should accommodate religion, but religion should be kept in private, right? Do you want to pray? Oh, go ahead. Pray at home, pray in your church, right? Do you want to sing? Do you want to? But when it comes to maybe talking about policy, public policy, you can't, you have to park your religion at home. Religion should be done in private. When it comes to matters of how we engage in the society, we should, that, that space, the public domain should be secular. We keep the sacred and the religious private because it only benefits you privately. But then, when we come together like this, we all know that we need to keep it neutral. And the neutral is secular. What's the problem with this one? Well, first of all, there is no such thing as a neutral way of thinking. There just isn't. And it depends on your definition of religion. So for instance, if you say, well, what does it mean to be religious? Well, you have to believe in God. No, Zen Buddhists don't actually believe in a God. Okay, no, no, no. It, it means that you have to believe in the supernatural. No. Hindus don't believe in the supernatural. They believe in the world that we see, but they believe in this, that everything that we see has spiritual connotations. But they don't believe in, the, here's the physical, and then you have the uh, supernatural outside of it. So it's neither just a belief in God, neither is it just the fact that you have to believe in the supernatural. Rather, what religion is, is a set of beliefs explaining the purpose of life, who we are, what's right and what's wrong, and what's worth doing. A set of beliefs 
that explain the purpose of life, who we are, what's right, what's wrong, and what's worth doing. In this regard, secularism is as religious as Christianity. Because you cannot come out and say you want to make some kind of public policy without some kind of belief as to what the value of something is or not. Why should we protect people's lives? Well, we protect people's lives because we think lives are important. Where did you get that from? Do you feel it? Sorry, if you feel it, sorry, that's not rational. How do I test that? No, when we come to the public arena, we all come with a set of beliefs of things that we think are right. Should we create uh, policies that enable people not only to just stay, uh, to get married, but to stay married? And you say, yes, 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 that's true. Why? Well, because it benefits society. Why? Because, well, if people stay together, then the children will actually flourish. Okay, why is the happiness of children important? Well, for our society to stay together. Why is our society staying together important? Why do you think unity is a good thing and, uh, and uh, division isn't a good thing? You can't answer that question infinitely just going all the way back. You have to come with some faith-based assumptions. And in that regard, you cannot say that religion should be kept in private. All of us go into the world with certain beliefs of things that we assume are already important. Some of us get it by revelation. We think that there is a God and that God has spoken, and so we take it. Some of us just make it up or depend on how we feel. But in this regard, secularism, supposed neutral secularism, is as religious as all the other religious systems. The final one. We ostracize religion. Now, the point of this, it goes something like this. Religion, including Christianity, has done untold harm in the world. Claiming to have the truth, capital T, truth, is often, something we uh, is often a power play, something we use to actually oppress people that don't have it. So the one who usually possesses it would oppress the other. So for example, you have sub the subjugation of women. So if you say that... Um, men are somehow more evolved or whatever, or men are, they are, more, they are smarter than women, then women obviously cannot do certain things. Only a man can marry uh, multiple women. So we use it for the subjugation of women. Or we use it for things like slave, the slave trade, right? A particular race is meant to serve another race. Or we use it like for things like colonialism or segregation. Now, but now, the more we see advances in science and other things, the more we know that even though religion played a certain part in our society, and it was good at that time, right now, because of the kind of harm that we see, I mean, just take a look at what guys are doing in the Middle East. We can see, according to Christopher Hitchens, that religious, religion poisons everything. So what should we do? We should ostracize religion get it out of the way. Religion is not a force for good. Religion is a force for evil. Now, what's the problem with this? Well, first, statistically, the world is not getting, even though we've had more advances in science, the statistics that show um, how religious the world is, is not on the downward trend. It's actually on the upward trend, even today. All right, people are getting more religious. That's the first thing. But the second thing is, as Christians, and I can only speak for Christians, we must say this. People in the name of Christ have done horrible things. People in the name of Christ have killed. People in the name of Christ have 
made women second-class citizens. People in the name of Christ have actually gone and further enhanced the colonial system. People in the name of Christ have done terrible things. You don't get any favors by actually denying it. But I would say to you, if you hold to those views, that first of all, you have to separate the abuse of something from what it actually stands for, right? Is it in the religion itself to actually do the things that its adherents are doing, or they're actually going against it? But when you say that religion poisons everything and has done untold evil, um, have you heard of the Nazis? Have you heard of the communist Russians, the communist Chinese, the communist Cambodian regimes? These were all systems that did not, or movements that did not believe in God. They weren't, by your definition, religious. These people in the 20th century alone killed more people than Christians have ever killed since the birth of the religion. So to say that evil is the purview of Christianity or the purview of religions is not actually consistent. We still have the same problem. Now, we know that, yes, sometimes if Tomua says, I have the truth, that he may have something else underneath that, right? Some men love wives submit to your husbands, not because they want to follow on with that and see how men should sacrificially lay their lives for their husbands, but because there is something else behind. They want to actually oppress them. They want to be kings in their own homes. So sometimes people utter certain things, and it's important for us to see through what they are saying. Do we understand what I mean by seeing through? Somebody makes a statement. What the statement he's saying in the statement is not the real thing. There is something else underneath that, and it's important for us to see through. Now, but even though we see through the statement, a writer, C.S. Lewis, says that it's important that we can't continue to see through over and over and over again. Here's his quote in The Abolition of Man. He says, you cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see through something through it. Let me say that again. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It is good that the window should be transparent because the street or the garden beyond it is opaque. What if you saw through the garden too? A wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same thing as not to see at all. Do you understand? There's something good about being hesitant before people, you know, somebody that makes a truth claim. There's something good. It means even somewhat skeptical. But it's actually folly to become a total cynical skeptic. Eventually, I want to see through something because I want to see what is beyond that. So to say that there's always something beyond, the people that say, well, you know, our God is the true God, there's something behind that. The people that say, well, this is the way my ought to be arranged, there's something through that. And you're always saying something through and something through. Eventually, you have to land somewhere else. So you see, guys, the question isn't whether there is truth. Jesus emphatically claims that he's the ultimate truth. In the first chapter of this book, he says that the word became flesh. The world, the ultimate purpose for life, became flesh and dwelt amongst us. We have seen the glory, his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. 
Jesus says that he is ultimate truth. Not all kinds of truth, right? Jesus is not going to tell you how to pass your exams of tomorrow. I don't know. But he is the ultimate truth. He claims that emphatically. The, the question should not be whether or not there is truth. We should be asking, with truth is demonstrable by evidence and ultimately leads to the best flourishing for all its adherents and even in an indirect way for those who don't believe as well. Which truth ultimately gives the best picture of flourishing in this life because that is the way you corroborate whether or not it's true. Now, Jesus says, I am the truth, and you can check that out. Why? Because I am also the life. So we go to the second point. He is the life. Now, when Jesus makes this claim, remember again, it's an exclusive claim. He says he is the life. Not just life, but the life. Now, what does he mean by life? Now, he doesn't mean, you know, as some, sometimes we term what he said, uh, John, uh, Jesus said in, in John chapter 10, that he is abundant life. And abundant life means a life of no suffering in this world, a life where you can party all you want, where, you know, you can change all your clothes, you know, every single weekend in church or whatever, you know, just Life will go smooth for you as long as you show enough faith in Jesus Christ. You know, nothing is going to happen to your business. Nothing is going to happen to your family. Nothing is, no, 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 because this is what abundant life is all about. That's not what he meant by abundant life. Now, abundant life is something he's spoken about numerous times in this particular book. So in 3.16, he says, those who believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. Or in John chapter 6, verse 40, he says, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. When Jesus speaks about eternal life, he's speaking about what you call resurrection life. In fact, in John chapter 11, when he raised Lazarus up from the dead, before he did that, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He is the resurrection and the life. So Jesus says two things about his life. It's one, it's eternal, but that two, he is the source of that life. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die, John 11, 25 and 26. So Jesus is saying that he is the source of this eternal life. Now, by eternal life, we don't just mean living forever, even though it includes that. By eternal life, we're saying life to the full, life in the way God always wanted it. It means that when we look out today, you know, there's beautiful Valeria with her mom, right? Beautiful Hadassah there. There's something good in this world. All of us see it, right? We come together, even just gathering together, diverse people like this. We know that that's a good thing. So this world has a lot of good things. I'm not saying poverty is a good thing. No, I'm not saying that. There's something about if you've gone to a very nice restaurant, you've eaten there, I mean, glory be to God, right? There are many good things about this world. But there are many awful things about this world as well. As we speak and sit down today, people are going through wars. People are killing each other for things that you wonder that they could just sit down on the table and actually maybe forgive each other and go ahead. We have natural disasters. We have man-made disasters. So many horrible things are going on. When Jesus speaks about resurrected life, he's saying that there is something I'm going to give you. It is... You, as you are now, but you will then live again. All the maladies that actually you suffer from now, you will not suffer them in the next life. And this world that you are seeing, the oceans and the, all the beautiful things that are there, 
how about picture this world here, this earth, without all the evils that actually come with it? This is why that Romans 8 says that the whole creation is waiting for the unveiling of the sons of God. Because the creation knows that it will be delivered from its bondage to decay and be ushered into the glorious liberty of the children of God. God promises that through Jesus, he will renew us finally, all those that believe in Jesus, but also this world. Now, in that, Christianity says this. Christianity says that this life matters, but this life is not the ultimate. This life matters. In other words, what we do here matters, so we care about the flourishing and brokenness now. If God is going to renew this world, and God is going to renew people, we care for people and this world now in anticipation of what God is going to do in the future. So Christianity says this life matters now. And also what you do here is going to matter for your ultimate judgment. So we take care of this world. But he also says that this life isn't ultimate. Because here is not the final bus stop. There have been people who have been sentenced to prison, wrongly, died in prison, and never got justice. If this world was the final bus stop, what do you think that kind of life picture is? There have been people who have not been given the chance to even live in this world because the parents thought it's going to be a very difficult time for them. Surely we want a God that would bring justice, not just in this world, but ultimately in the world to come. So because we know that God is going to renew the world and there is life after here, though we think that we know that things are quite important here, we also know that life here is not the ultimate. This is why Christians fought against slavery, subjugation of women, racial segregation, apartheid, maltreatment of laborers, and also were at the forefront of adopting children. The early Christians did that. They did this not in spite of their Christianity, but because of their Christianity. So this kind of promise that guarantees eternal flourishing with the motivation to work for present flourishing, I think further adds credence to Christianity's exclusive truth claims. You know, sometimes I like traveling, sometimes I don't. If I'm traveling somewhere that I've never been before, and I think all of us like that, there's, there's an excitement of the exotic, right? So someone recommends that you should go to Cape Town. You're like, wow, you know, the, the scenery there is just beautiful. I don't know if you've seen it by pictures, you know, the fruits, the people, everything. So when you have booked the ticket and you're about to go, you know, part of the good thing about traveling is not just the fact that you get there. It's the anticipation, the excitement of traveling. Now, for me personally, after I've spent a few weeks, what's the next thing that happens? I start longing. It's, it's nice. The exotic is nice. I've experienced it. But all of a sudden, I start longing for home. I don't know if you experienced that. All right, it depends on where you're traveling to. Okay. <laughs> well, usually, it normally works when you become when you spent all your money, all of a sudden, home actually seems like a nice place. This place is, well, how much? $20? No way. So there is both an excitement about traveling to somewhere you've never seen before, but there's also the excitement of going back to the place that you know. The excitement of the exotic and the excitement of the familiar. And God says, when I renew the world, you will have both the exotic and the familiar brought together. Femi Akinwari will be Femi Akinwari in the real world. But it's not Femi Akinwari fully as we know it. We will know it's Femi, 
And yet, we'll be like, this is Femi to the fullest. This world will be familiar, but at the same time, it will be very exotic. This is what Christianity promises us. I wish I could say more, but I need to move on before time. Because the thing that makes the eternal dwelling, as we see in verses 2, is not so much just the fact that everything is renewed. It is because it is the Father's home. It is the Father's home. Without God being there, heaven is like hell. God is the one that makes it worth being. He says that in his presence there is fullness of joy, and at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. It will be like living in a mansion, a 12-room mansion, beautiful with all the fineries and everything, and you are the only person there. You know how that feels like? You say, hello, is there anyone there? And your echo comes back to you. A beautiful house can be like a haunted house. If God isn't there, Jesus said, it's my father's home. We will be there with him forever. I can't say much about that, but all I'll say is this. Jesus, who tells us that it's going to be exciting, is the experienced traveler. He's been with God, and he comes back to tell us. Not only we travel or go to places where or visit restaurants that someone we trust, who has experience, who has the taste, says, I think you should go to that restaurant. Jesus is saying, I have been there, and now I have entered into the new life that is there. Trust me. Even though we can't describe it fully, trust me. But how do we get there? Oof. How do we get there? Because we've said all these things. It's heady stuff. How do we get there? Well, that leads to the third point, the way. Now, Jesus has said a lot, and Thomas is the straight shooting guy. I know we all think about him as the guy who actually doubts and everything. Forget that. All of us doubt. But the difference between you and Thomas is that Thomas doesn't keep quiet, you know? How sometimes we doubt certain things, but we don't want people to know. Because if we said that we didn't understand, we'll look stupid, right? Thomas is very, very straightforward. He says, Lord, you're saying all these things. You're saying that we know the way in verse 4. But truly, Lord, I don't know the way. And these guys are keeping quiet. I'm sure they don't know the way. How do we get there? Now, we're talking about eternity, and we're saying, how do we get there? Jesus emphatically tells his disciples that they know the way in verse 4. He says they know the way. Why does he say that they know the way? Because he is the way. I am the way. In other words, he's saying, Lord, you're talking about this thing, and we know you're taking a journey. Are you going through Jerusalem, and then you get to Jericho, and then you actually, how are you going to go? And Jesus say, no, don't you understand it? You know the way. How? I am the way. Okay? And Jesus actually sees something. They know Jesus. That's why he says that they know the way. But in verse 7, it also says that if you really knew me, you would know the Father as well. There's one way they know Jesus and another way they don't really know Jesus. They know him, but they don't know he's the way to the Father. What's going on here? I want you to think about two things. Because in many ways, many of us have grown up as Christians, grown up as Christians, professing Christians. We know about Jesus. We know about many things in the church. And Jesus is saying, there's a way you can know me, and there's a way you cannot really know me. How is Jesus the way? Because founders, now let, let, me, let me tell you what the disciples missed out. The disciples actually had this fundamental problem. They assumed that the way Jesus was going to take 
the way Jesus was going to take was also the way that they were meant to take. So Jesus is saying, I am going to the Father, and you know, uh, you know the way. But they now say, okay, how's the way? They assume that Jesus is going to the Father. We also too want to go to the Father. Jesus is taking a particular way to the Father, and we also are meant to follow that way to the Father. This is where Christianity separates itself from other religions. Other religions will say, a founder will say this, here is the way to eternal bliss. I have taken it, and so, also, and so you also should take it. Here's the way to eternal bliss. I have taken it. You also should take it. And many Christians say the same thing. They say, how do we get to God's eternal dwelling home? Well, all you need to do is WWJD. Ask the question, what would Jesus do? If you say just follow in the footsteps of Jesus, just do what Jesus did, this is the way you get to the Father, guess what? You will be dead wrong. We all want the same destination, one destination where Jesus was going, right? The Father. But it's either you take the same path and you lead to different destinations, or you take different paths, one, the one Jesus takes and the one Jesus recommends, and you lead to the same destination. I'll say that again. We either take the same path as Jesus, but that leads us to different destinations, or we take different paths, Jesus' path and the one he recommends, and that leads us to the destination. I'll put it this way. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, right? The way of only following in Jesus' footsteps, the way of only following in Jesus' footsteps, it the, is the lie that leads to the death. The way of saying, Jesus did all these things, and so I must also be a moral person, is the lie that leads to the death. The death, by the death I mean the second death as we see in Revelation 20. That is eternal damnation. Why? Because you cannot, Jesus lived the life that we could, were meant to live, but we could not live. To follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to lead to the Father, yes, we'll take it to the Father, but it is to the wrath of the Father. But if you follow the way, the way, that is Jesus, that is the way of going through Jesus is the truth leading to the life. You see, when Jesus says he's going to prepare a place for us in verse 2, Jesus is not saying, you see, when I get to the Father, actually, when I was living in my incarnation, I paid the contractors for the foundation, right? The foundation has started. I hear that the foundation has been finished. So now I need to go to the Father to now you know, raise the building and put the roofs and all that. So when I've finished the place, then you guys can all start coming in. Now, it's going to take about 2,500 years. Don't try and predict the time because only the Father knows the time. But it'll take a while. I need to, you know, um, um, uh, mobilize the heavenly Julius Burgers and Caterpillars and whatever because we can't get this. So that's not what he's saying. Now, the current NIV doesn't get verse 2 properly. The old NIV did. Let's, let me tell you how we should read verse 2. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you. For I am going to prepare, for I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Get this straight. The way Jesus prepares the place for us is the journey that Jesus takes. The way Jesus prepares the place for us is not that he goes there and he prepares it, but the way he's going to prepare a place for us is the very journey he takes to the Father. 
What is the journey Jesus takes to the Father? When Jesus is saying he's departing, I'm going to the Father, but why is he in anguish? If going to the Father is where his pleasures are forevermore, why is he in anguish? Why? It's because of the road he's taking. Jesus, because we couldn't live the life we're meant to live, suffers and goes through the death so that you and I can have the life. The death for Jesus is the suffering on the cross where he experiences hell. And because he has experienced that in our place, when we put our trust in him, then we can have the life. That is the truth. Any other way is actually a lie. You say, well, that's not loving to say that. Actually, the loving thing to do is if you have the truth to say it. Imagine if there was a pharmaceutical company today that found the cure for cancer and said, we don't want to say that we have the cure for cancer because we don't want to offend all other pharmaceutical companies. That would be ridiculous, wouldn't it be? But Jesus says, only through me will you find life. Will you come to him? If you've known Jesus, but you've not really known Jesus, will you see that you can put all you're trying to be something that you're not, put it on him? Will you put all your failures of trying to be good, because that only attracts the death, and put it on him? And for us who are Christians here, I need to say this. Jesus is the truth. You are not the truth. Be careful how you hold on to the exclusive message because it's an exclusive message about him. It's not an exclusive message about you. That's what it teaches. He is the truth and none of his followers are the truth. Secondly, if you really believe this, you will not be smug or arrogant because what did you deserve? You deserved the death. The life only comes to you because you rested in Jesus Christ and nothing else. As Christians, we need to be the most tolerant people. As Christians, we need to be the most patient people with people that don't believe like us. As Christians, we need to be the most kind and loving people because that is what it means to follow the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church. Love Jesus. Love people. Love Lagos.